Genesis chapter 18, verses 1 to 15. The Lord appeared to Abraham near the great trees of Marais, while he was sitting at the entrance of his tent in the heat of the day. Abraham looked up and saw three men standing nearby. When he saw them, he hurried from the entrance of his tent to meet them and bowed low to the ground. He said, if I have found favour in your eyes, my lord, do not pass your servant by. Let a little water be brought, and then you may all wash your feet and rest under his tree. Let me get you something to eat so you can be refreshed, and then go on your way, now that you have come to your servant. Very well, they answered. Do as you say. So Abraham hurried into the tent to Sarah. Quick, he said, get three sheaths of the finest flour and knead it and bake some bread. Then he ran to the herd and selected a choice, tender calf, and gave it to the servant, who hurried to prepare it. He then brought some curds and milk and the calf that he prepared, and set these before them. While they ate, he stood near them under a tree. Where is your wife Sarah? they asked him. There in the tent, he said. Then one of them said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, will have a son. Now Sarah was listening at the entrance of the tent to which was behind him. Abraham and Sarah were already very old, and Sarah was past the age of childbearing. So Sarah laughed to herself as she thought, Atra, I am worn out and my Lord is old. Will I now have his pleasure, this pleasure? Then the Lord said to Abraham, Why does Sarah laugh and say, Will I really have a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? I will return to you at the appointed time next year, and Sarah will have a son. Sarah was afraid, so she lied and said, I didn't laugh. But he said, Yes, you did laugh. This is the word of the Lord. Please keep page 17, or if you've got your Bible on your phone, uh, however, and have Genesis in front of you. We're going to be looking at Genesis 18. Let me start with a question. Uh, are you a foodie? Are you a foodie? I've got answers already from the floor. Maybe you're not quite sure what a foodie is. I've got five criteria here which I got off a website. It's called 50 Ways to Know You're a Foodie. We're not going to do all 50. Here's five. Cooking from scratch whenever possible. Trying new dishes each time you eat out. Knowing where different cuts of meat come from. Owning lots of cookbooks. Inviting people around for food regularly. So, are you a foodie? What about the person next to you? What do they think? Actually, that last characteristic, inviting people around for food regularly, it's a really interesting one. And it takes us right into the heart of our passage today. Now, in Genesis before, we've heard mention of food and eating, even a picnic. But I think this is the first ever recorded act of hospitality in the Bible. As such, I think it's a hugely significant passage and worthy of our full attention this morning. So, we're going to dive right in, but first of all, what's on the menu well, I'm going to suggest that this passage is a two-course menu, 
with options for those still hungry for desserts and coffee. The starter is the first half, verse 1 to 8. It's the details of the hospitality. And what amazing details they are. Now the main course, verse 9 to 15, that's where we find that the conversation and the business, the covenant business, really gets done. This is the business between Abraham and Sarah and the Lord himself. Now if you're still hungry for more and in your own time for dessert, you can go on from verse 16, the second half of chapter 18, and read how Abraham <coughs> accompanies his guests as they set out towards Sodom, how he intercedes for the city and what happens next. You're still not satisfied with that of a coffee and a cheese board later. Chapter 19, you can compare and contrast Abraham and Lot, and Abraham and Lot and the Sodomites, the levels of hospitality that can be expected under the oaks of Mamre and in Sodom. You'll find that very instructive. And if you manage the full menu, like if you eat everything on the menu, you get your meal for free, there will be a firework display to finish. I'll let you think about that. Let's put that menu aside now and start with our first course, verse 1 to 8. Now our story begins with a rather sleepy old man, Abraham, sitting the hottest time of day in the shade near the door of his tent. Picture the scene with me, if you will. He's an old man. His morning work has been finished. He's settling down for his afternoon siesta. Maybe his eyes become heavy. He's enjoying the cool of the great oaks, not Oak Hill College, but here, the oaks at Mamre in Hebron. But before we go too far, what do we know about Abraham to this point? Well, as if you're watching a Netflix series previously in the life of Abraham, chapter 11, we know that his original name was Abram. I'm just going to whistle through this. You can check. His family left Ur via Haran, traveled to the land of Canaan, and that's where we find him under the trees. Chapter 12, we know that the Lord had called him previously and spoken to him. At that point, he was aged only 80, at 75 years. He was promised three wonderful things. Land, the land of Canaan, where he's now sitting. Descendants, of whom he had none. And the blessing of his protective presence. These are the exact words, verse 1 to 3 of chapter 12. Go from your country, this is back in Ur, and then Haran, your people and your father's household, to the land I will show you. That's Canaan. I will make you into a great nation. And I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you I will curse. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Now, in the second half of chapter 12, immediately, there is a threat and a jeopardy to this promise. The land, this promised land, suffers from famine. Off Abraham runs to Egypt. His wife, then called Sarai, the king of Egypt, nearly stole her for his wife. Jeopardy. Chapter 13. Now we find Abraham, a rich man now, separating from his relative Lot. He makes his first appearance at the Oaks of Mamre in chapter 13. He pitches his tent there. He builds an altar there. He worships God at Mamre. Mamre is going to be an important place. Chapter 14, more trouble, more jeopardy. The 
There's a battle. Abraham gets drawn into a conflict. He manages to raise a small army from which we know that he's not alone, just him and his missus, like me and my wife now the kids have gone. But he's got lots of family and servants living with him. He rescues Lot. Chapter 15. We hear here how God ratifies and repeats the promises which we learn from chapter 12. Maybe Abraham was doubting them. There's a formal agreement or a covenant made which involves some kind of strange sacrifice. Chapter 16, more threat, more jeopardy. Sarai takes things into her own hands and says, well, look, if I can't have a baby, what about my maidservant Hagar? She gives birth to Ishmael and everything goes horribly wrong. By now, Abraham is 86. He's been waiting for these promises to be fulfilled for 11 long years. Chapter 17, now he's 99. Another 13 years of waiting have gone by. Abraham pleads with the Lord to fulfill his promises through Hagar's son Ishmael, but no, says the Lord, it's Sarah's child. Sarah, now an old lady herself of 90, she's going to have the child of the promise. Abraham falls on his face and laughs. The Lord repeats and expands and draws Sarah into this promise. They're both given new names, Abraham and Sarah. And the mark of circumcision was given. And so we come to these oaks and find Abraham sitting there waiting. Verse 1, the narrator tells us that the Lord appeared to Abraham again. Look, Abraham looks up. Verse 2, and he sees these three men standing nearby. Maybe he has to rub his eyes a little bit to make sure he's not dreaming, he hasn't nodded off them. Once he's sure that there really are three men there, we find him springing into action, not like a 99-year-old, but a perfect, energised Middle Eastern host. The indignities of old men running fall from him as in the first of two incidents of him running, he runs to meet them. Now, this point we're not sure we know because the narrator has told us but he's not at all sure who these unknown guests are but it doesn't deter him maybe also he is hopeful that somehow in this unexpected visit the lord is present he bows before them in an act of great humility he urges them to enjoy some rest with him before they continue on their way he makes some very basic offers in verse 3 to 5. Deliberate understatements. A bit of, bit of something, a bit of water. We're soon going to find out just how understated that was. He also describes himself twice as their servant. And he makes good on that promise. Now, this old man's off running again. This time, to fix a meal fit for kings. And he's going to stop in at sure you've got these in Hampstead, the bakery, the butchers and the dairy. First it's to Sarah, get 22, three seers, it's 22 litres, that's more than enough, isn't it? Think about that. Of the, the finest flour, later used in sacrificial offerings, bake bread, verse 6. Verse 7, a servant is to dress and prepare a meat feast from a calf that Abraham picks by hand. Then he's off to the dairy to bring curds and milk. I'm not sure I really like curds that much, but 
Middle Easterners in those days especially, that would be standard and they would love them. My Ethiopian friends, they used to love smoked curds. That was about the only thing in Ethiopia I couldn't eat and they, they laughed and laughed at me. Who brings it all to the table as chief waiter? Abraham. What does he do while they're eating? He stands there watching verse 8, topping up their plates, topping up their cups, pressing more upon them, and so they eat, drink, and are satisfied. I wonder how much was left over. We lived in uh, Ethiopia, as I said, for 11 years. This kind of hospitality, which might read strangely to some of us if we've not left Britain's shores, <coughs> seems after we'd lived there for a while, to be quite normal. Ethiopian hosts, they'd meet us at their door. They might even meet us on the road. They'd treat us with great honor and respect. They would always bring water, first thing, for our hands, sometimes for our feet. I've got an embarrassing story about that involving my daughter's nail varnish asking me over lunch. They always gave us the very best that they had. They would rarely sit down with us and eat, but would stand there watching and feed us like royalty. When finished, we would ask for permission to pray and leave, and they would always accompany us on the journey, just like Abraham does in verse 16. <coughs> all in all, a very different picture of hospitality from what we're used to, and took a bit of uh, getting used to while we lived there. Now, often we'd ask our hosts, please eat with us, and half the time we were successful, and half the time we went, and we just had to get used to that. Now, back at the Oaks of Mamre. How long do you think it took for all this food to be prepared and consumed, for the meal to be over? Uh, bear in mind that the calf was still alive when they arrived. Think also about the vast quantities, an old lady needing 22 litres of flour, letting it rise, baking the bread, dressing the calf. I should imagine that before they finally got down to business in this time-rich situation, the sun may well have been sinking towards the horizon. In verse 9, business starts. All this time, Abraham must have been wondering who these three men were, why they had come, how God was present, what God was doing, and when he was finally going to keep his promises made 25 years ago. And so from starter, we move to main course, verse 9 to 15. And there are some real surprises here. Prolonging the ambiguity as to who these guests are, what's their identity, the conversation now seems to oscillate between the plural, guests, men, and the singular, one man. Abraham is sometimes speaking with all three of them, and sometimes he's speaking with just one of them. Could this be the Lord? Abraham is a star host, but actually he fades into the background in the second half of the story we read. And it's Sarah who is drawn and dragged, kicking and screaming reluctantly, into the spotlight. They ask a question which they already know the answer to. Those are the best kinds of questions. Verse 9, where is your wife? Sarah, how do they know my name? She must have been thinking, listening as she was from the tent flaps. Now, in verse 10, only one of the three speaks. Again, Sarah is named, 
But as yet there is not a direct and embarrassing address, but indirectly through Abraham. He promises to return again at this time next year and that Sarah would have a son. Now, this is nothing new for Abraham. He's had this conversation with the Lord already in chapter 17. Abraham even knows the name of the son that's going to be born. But I don't think he told his wife, Sarah. Now, husbands, you sometimes frighten to tell your wives things because you're frightened of a certain reaction. If that's true for you, you can sympathize with Abraham a little here. It doesn't look like he told her. Now, our narrator keeps the focus very firmly on Sarah in verse 11 and 12, telling us that she was listening, unobserved, in the tent. She thought nobody could sense her presence. She hears about bearing a son. She laughs to herself privately. It's a laugh, I would suggest, of cynical disbelief tinged with bitterness. Because, as the narrator has emphasized, both Abraham and Sarah are well past it. She's been through the menopause. Now, we don't often hear sermons about menopause, but here it is in the text. She knows her own body. Her womb is finished. It's as though it's dead. And as for Abraham, her Lord, and this is where we get the first occurrence of the word laugh in our passage. Now, we know from chapter 17, verse 19, that the promised son's name... Isaac means he laughed, because that's the reaction it causes. It's a laughable proposition. Uh, the Ethiopic language, which is Semitic, called Amharic, which we had to learn, uh, it's similar. Sak, he laughed. It's related to the name. Isak. My Ethiopian friends could get that straight away. Count with me now how many times the verb laugh comes between verse 13 and 15. How many times is it? You'll notice that laugh is now repeated three further times. So that every time Sarah's laughter is mentioned, for better or for worse, that name Isaac is being sounded. Verse 13, why did Sarah laugh? Verse 15, I didn't laugh. Verse 15 again, oh yes you did laugh. Oh no I didn't, oh yes you did. Isaac, 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 Isaac. Delicious irony, isn't it? God is dealing so very graciously with Sarah. He's exposing her unbelief and he's leading her to trust in him. Him, the omniscient one who even knows her name and her inmost thoughts. Him, the omnipotent one who can do whatever he wants, who can bring her forth a son from a barren room, who can create life from death. Verse 14, is anything too hard for the Lord? This little gem, this little nugget, this diamond, it sits in the rough of Sarah's cynicism, bitterness, disappointment, and unbelief. Now, we don't have time to follow Abraham off from verse 16 towards Sodom as the three visitors continue their journey. But verse 16 and verse 22, if you glance at them, they make it even clearer that two of the visitors are angels of the Lord and the one who speaks at length with Abraham and to Sarah indirectly was the Lord himself. It's what we will call a theophany, an appearance of God in human form. Now, this, of course, anticipates deliciously 
to carry on the food theme, the coming of our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ many years later. I'd like to make two applications from this passage to our lives today, and they very much follow the two halves of the story, the starter and then the main. Firstly, don't forget to practice hospitality. That's the starter. And the main, take comfort from Sarah's fragile faith. So firstly, don't forget to show hospitality. Now, these words might sound familiar to you, and that's because they're in the New Testament. Hebrews 13, verse 2 says, And the writer is clearly thinking of Abraham and Sarah. Do not forget to show hospitality to strangers, for some have entertained angels without knowing it. Now, it's Mission Sunday today. We can now begin to see, many thousands of years later, how, just how, all nations are being blessed through Abraham. People from every tribe, tongue, people and nation, as we had in our prayers, they're putting their faith in Jesus around the world. They're joining his universal body, the church, around the world. And it's wonderful. God might be calling some of us here today, just like he called Abraham from Ur, to go to the place he shows us. I wonder if he's calling you. Speak to your church leaders about it. Speak to the mission committee. But if the Lord is calling us to stay, as well as supporting our mission partners as best we can, we can reach out to the nations in our own community. That's not news to you. But maybe this is. One of the most effective ways to do this is to be hospitable. And two, not forget to show hospitality to strangers. Not forget. People from other countries often feel like strangers here. Alan, my friend's face, lit up when he was first invited to a British home for food. He'd come from Hong Kong. He never dreamed that he'd receive such a welcome, both at church and in the homes of Christians. He was one of the lucky ones. Some people stay for months and years and never see the inside of a British home. As doors opened, so did his heart. Now, at a recent church weekend away, Jason Roach was challenging the church from Acts chapter 10. Uh, that's the passage where Peter and Cornelius, they're sharing table fellowship in each other's houses. It's all a bit weird. They were strangers to each other, one a religious Jew, the other a pagan Gentile. You can argue with me about that if you like. Um, but he was definitely an Italian who needed the gospel, so there we go. And now it's in the context of that hospitality, it's under somebody's roof that the Lord deigns that Cornelius and his family will hear the gospel and respond as Peter speaks. He doesn't even let him finish his sermon. Now, we mustn't confuse our cultural, and in my case, our British, and the case of the place we're sitting in, our British notions of hospitality with biblical hospitality. They're not the same. British hospitality is often just having your friends around for a meal. Maybe we might call it entertaining. Try to get the house really nice and clean. Make sure the food's just right. Well, that's hospitable to an extent for sure, but they're still just my friends. Biblical hospitality extends a warm welcome and a gospel embrace to those who are not 
like us, as Jason reminded us. There's something rather wonderful that takes place when we follow Abraham's example, when we welcome people in. It's ironic, isn't it, that the Lord was Abraham's guest. It seems like it's the wrong way around. Abraham was actually only reflecting or mirroring God's own hospitable nature. God is the ultimate host. God has prepared a rich banquet of the most unimaginable food and drink. God welcomes in strangers like us, alienated by sin. God brings us to his table of salvation. God blesses us abundantly with the rich foods and the finest wines of knowing his son, Jesus Christ. Listen to the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah 25, verse 6 to 8. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wines, the best of meats, the finest of wines. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all people, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from the earth. The Lord has spoken. How was God's business transacted with Abraham and Sarah in Genesis 18? Over a covenant meal. It was a meal deal. Maybe the first. Alex said you might laugh at my jokes even if they weren't that good. Thank you, Alex. How do we remember the person and work of Jesus Christ in an intimate communion shared meal? How is heaven pictured in the Bible? As a bridal banquet. Are you a foodie? How can we play a part today in God's blessing all nations through Abraham? Well, one way is to welcome people to our homes and to our tables. Giving them lavishly 22 litres worth of our time, our attention and our hospitality. Sharing with them our food and our stories. Rosaria Butterfield has got a lovely little book about hospitality called The Gospel Comes with a House Key. She argues that, quote, hospitality is the ground zero of the Christian life. Hmm. I thought the Apostles' Creed was. Do you know what? I wouldn't disagree with her because it fleshes out that I believe in the Apostles' Creed. She, she goes on to say that we must not shy away from biblical hospitality for various reasons. Maybe we're frightened, or we're proud, house-proud, too house-proud, or, or maybe we mistake a spiritual gift for a command, or, or maybe we think we've got to have really special food and everything needs to be perfect. It just doesn't. Just sharing something simple together, whatever's in the house, Whatever's in the tent, it's the welcome, the time, the presence together that really matters. That's where the real business gets done. Now, thinking corporately for a moment, John, St. John's here. You've already got uh, some great international ministries. Maybe the Lord is asking you to ask whoever leads those about getting involved. And perhaps there are even more ways for the church as a whole to show hospitality to the nations in corporate ways alongside the individual hospitality. 
So first application is don't forget to show hospitality. The second is take comfort from Sarah's fragile faith. Let me ask you a question. As you look at the passage, do you think Sarah believed God or not? Did she trust the Lord or didn't she? Now, at first sight, because of her cynical laughter, her fear, her lie, her denial, it looks like she didn't believe. But in Genesis 21, two chapters later, she has the joy, old lady that she is, of holding baby Isaac in her wrinkled arms, just as the Lord had promised. She's laughing again, this time with joy. Genesis 21, verse 6, God has brought me laughter, and everyone who hears about this will laugh with me. In the book of Hebrews, which we've already mentioned, we find Sarah listed among the great heroes of the faith. Verse 11 and 12. And by faith, even Sarah, who was post-childbearing age, there we get the menopause again, just to make sure we understand that point, was enabled to bear children. Why? Because she considered him faithful, who had made the promise. And so from this one man, and he as good as dead, came descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as countless as the sand on the seashore. Sarah considered him faithful who had made the promise. And as a result of this faith, she knew God's blessing and us through her. Now, take comfort with me today from the fact that Sarah's faith was far from perfect. In our story, Sarah seems doubtful, unbelieving, mocking almost, cynical. But in God's goodness, he gave her the grace to believe and he gave her the faith she needed. And he showed her where to put it. It's important to note from Sarah and from other passages of scripture, like the parable of the mustard seed, that it's not the amount of faith that we have that matters. The important thing is the object of our faith. It's where we put the faith. It's who we put the faith in. The object of her faith, her weak, her fragile, her tentative faith, was in the Lord who keeps his promises. Now, you and I, were very much like Sarah, aren't we, I think? We want to believe everything God has promised. Sometimes the realities before our eyes, they make it difficult for us to believe. We start to doubt his promises. Things just seem impossible. I wonder if there's anything that God has promised that you have started doubting. I wonder if there's anything that you're waiting for, for years, against all hope. Do you doubt that he knows you? Do you doubt that he loves you? Do you doubt that he can save you? Do you doubt that he can use you, even in mission? Take comfort with me from Sarah today and from God's lovely, gracious dealing with her. Take what little faith you do have and put it in the Lord God Almighty, the one who knows your inmost thoughts, the one who calls you by name, the one who says, is anything too hard for the Lord? We've got our own with us today. George Verwer recently died. He once said about the Great Commission that we read together, the Great Commission from Matthew is more than a call for you and me to leave where we are and go somewhere else. It might be that there is, of course, a great need for people to go. 
But there's a greater need for each one of us to take up our responsibility as part of the church's response to the Great Commission, to be personally involved in whatever our particular role might be. What will your particular role, what will your personal involvement in St John's response to the Great Commission be today? It might seem difficult, it may seem impossible even, but is anything too hard for the Lord? A moment's quiet. Almighty God, we thank you for coming to lunch at Abraham's tent, for hosting us and being hosted by us, for using us in your mission to bless the nations through Abraham. Help us to know what we must do and to do it with joy, with our tentative faith, because you are a great, great God.